Mike has outlived so many newspapers. He keeps drawing and drawing and drawing, drawing his own conclusions, his own philosophies. He must have had a driving ambition. You don't get there and you don't stay there unless you want it very, very deeply. Welcome to Meat Bone Express, the filmmaking podcast. Today on the program is Luke Altman, film composer of such films as Fell and the Lunig Fragments, the new controversial documentary about cartoonist Michael Lunig. Welcome to the program, Luke. Hi, Mike. Firstly, explain how you became a composer uh, for film. My understanding is someone tracked you down. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, although, at the same time, um, probably the first experience that set me off in the direction of, of composing was a, a film experience anyway. Um, although I didn't start off uh, writing for film, it was when, you know, as a teenager, I was watching a, watching a VHS from the local video shop of 2001, A Space Odyssey, for the first time and just being completely knocked out by, by the score, um, which so prominently features uh, contemporary classical music uh, by George Ligeti, the great Hungarian composer. In particular, um, uh, the Requiem from um, uh, the Kyrie part of his Requiem. I just thought these sounds were impossible. I'd never heard anything like it and I was delighted and um, astonished to find out that these were just human sounds. It sounded alien, but um, uh, it was all traditional classical music, um, just in a, in a way I'd never heard it before for voice and orchestra. Beautiful music and anyone who's seen the film knows what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's pretty iconic. So from that point I knew that I wanted to compose why or what for, I had no idea as a, as a teenager, but um, um, I, I found my way, you know, I, I did uh, music at, at university, I wasn't going to be doing anything else at university, um, and, uh, and studied composition, and I never really had thought about composing for film, I was writing music for, you know, small social gatherings of like-minded people, and, and I still do. Um, chamber music, music for piano, strings, small numbers of instrumentalists. Um, but um, a friend of a friend of a friend uh, had heard that I was writing music and, and, um, and my friend asked me to, to send some music in um, for consideration, um, for the consideration of a director. Um, and that was uh, Casimir Burgess, the director of Fell. And I didn't take it seriously. I thought, well, this is, this is crazy. No one's going to be asking me for, for film music. I just write chamber music. And I, and I was extremely lax. And it was only on the third request of my friend that I decided finally, OK, I guess I better do this and just see, see what happens and sent in a CD of, of some selections of my music. And, uh, and uh, that's um, basically how I, how I met the director of Fell. Um, who heard something in it that um, was compatible with the screenplay that he was working on at the time. And what was that process? Uh, we have had discussions about this in the past. It seems like you were doing some of the composition kind of in tandem uh, with the production or the editing, and uh, it was a sort of back and forth. Uh, what was that process? Uh, and what things made it into the film and what didn't, I think you told me that you, you'd do like little kind of uh, sketch pad versions of music uh, uh, and then you would do a proper version and they would just go with the kind of the scribble version. Like uh, uh, what was that process like with that film? What was that journey like? It's, it is quite an excellent film. So if, if the audience hasn't seen it, it the, uh, Fell, uh, which premiered at the Sydney Film Festival, uh, it's, it's excellent work. What was that journey like? Well, I just couldn't help myself uh, when it came to writing music for the film. I, you know, they didn't ask me not to get straight to work. Um, so I did get straight to work and, uh, you know, and I was on board in, in the early stages, um, you know, before the shoot, um, early versions of the script, you know, responding to that, sketching ideas, running through them with some friends and, um, and 
just sending them off as as ideas for for consideration and and it's funny but some of those really early ideas seem to seem to stick and uh, I, I don't know what it was um, that, uh, that that made it that way but I just found it impossible to improve on certain early ideas you know you think as it goes along you've come up with more and more appropriate ideas that are more and more likely to replace old ideas but they become embedded at a very early stage and it's impossible to let go of them in in as part of the part of the story so some very early sketches actually found their way into the into the film and and um and have a, a more prominent place in it than than I could possibly have expected at the time. Does that actually change the filmmaking process? Uh, you know, for the for the director, does that actually change the film? That's a a question for a director, I suppose. I mean, um, have you asked? No, 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 I haven't. Do asked. you suspect you... That, that that it that it changes the process? I mean, it's as James Curry says, uh, sound is uh, probably sixty percent of the film experience. So sh surely it would. Well. I don't know if it changes the the process, it, but it certainly contributes to the to the story, um, and in unexpected ways. Changes I, the result. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any any contribution in in any any department of the production will. It's just a matter of whether or not it's something which which is um, essential. And if it's not essential, then it has to go. And do you think that uh, it? And maybe it's hard to determine how it changes it because sound is perhaps the most mysterious part of film. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's not as literal. It's not, oh, the man is walking from here to here. It's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an entirely different language. I really envy the sound department. Um, they get to do such musical work and, and not in the, you know, and without the sort of staged associations of music with a capital M um, as as people listen to it, but just beautiful sounds arranged um, uh, to tell a story on film. It, it, I'm bewildered and delighted by by good sound design. It's um, it's it's just wonderful. I'd love my music to sound more like sound design. Right, right. Now the the latest film that you've composed for is uh, the Lunig Fragments. Yes, uh, and uh, Michael Lunig is is quite. In the news at the moment because of his sort of latest cartoon. What is your personal opinion of Michael Lunick, and do you think that that latest cartoon uh, was uh, worth having a controversy about? Uh, do, do you like his work? What, what's your personal opinion? Everything's worth having a, a bit of controversy about. Um, I, I don't know him personally. I didn't get to meet him during the making of the film, but um, uh, I certainly respect free speech and I think uh, probably feel just as strongly about that as as uh, as Lunig implies he does through his work that's just so important um, and if, if if controversy is the result so be it that's uh, that's fantastic um, it's more important to have discussion about um, about any topic than it is to be to be polite and uh, um, uh, and sort of toe the line um, that just bores the living daylights out of me when people do that. I'd much rather be offended um, than um, uh, than think something was, uh, you know, sophisticated and appropriate and um, and, uh, and and nice and witty and um, harmless. Now you, you have uh, been nominated for an actor award uh, for this uh, for the Scorts film. Uh, mm -hmm. con congratulations! What was the process like for this film compared to Fell? Being a documentary, but the same director, uh, what what was it like? Well, it's um, I mean the main difference, uh, and I and this wouldn't be the case for for every documentary, but um, certainly in in contrast to Phil, you just don't know what the story is going to be, um, and uh, it's it was a, about a five year process this um, this shoot. Uh, for, for this documentary, um, and any one of those those fragments, and it's appropriately called the Lunic fragments because uh, there are just so many little pieces of the the puzzle which have to come together to tell this story. Um, I, I had no idea how they were going to come together in the end, 
and whether something might be picked up in a shoot next week that could change the direction of, of the whole film. Um, something of great significance might occur which might put um, a previously solid musical idea in the in the waste paper basket. Um, so there are lots of fragmentary pieces of writing. Um, it's, it doesn't have um, you know a score that's sort of through composed and has uh, motifs that really come back. So uh, is there a level of almost blind faith when you don't know how the film is going to turn out, particularly with a documentary, that you're going to go, okay, this is my hunch and I'm just going to do this, this is what I feel? Because your music is not you sitting at a keyboard and, and just churning out some ambient recordings. You're writing every note. A lot yeah. of people don't understand uh, what a composer is anymore because it's, it's quite an old-fashioned job, but you're you know, literally there with a, with, a, with a pencil a lot of the time, maybe some of it's done on a computer, but you're writing the music for someone else to play. And uh, that's not you doing noodling and going, oh, that kind of ambient sound will work here. You, you're, you're, you're very specific. And so you can't uh, be flippant about it. Uh, and, and, and therefore, uh, when you're preempting a film uh, with these compositions, is there a kind of, yeah, faith, well, I, I hope this works. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I do, I do noodle. Um, I guess I've just got um, a, a way of noodling which involves more, you know, HB pencils and, and paper than than um, a, a lot of more more um, uh, well equipped and and um, uh, and, uh, and streamlined. But because it's so laborious that the process, you can't noodle to the same extent. You can't noodle for out. Like have hours and hours of output because uh, I mean, uh, yeah. just just for the just for the listeners, uh, for instance, how long does it take you to um, uh, compose, um, say, a, a five-minute piece of music? Oh gosh, I mean, there could be. Um, there's a bit of a uh, bit of variation there, but if I could do five minutes in a week, I'd be pretty happy. Yeah, um, I guess what you might be referring to um, by uh, you know the, the, by noodling um, and being careful with it is um, noodling with resources, because I'm uh, really fond of working with musicians. I like to get collaborators on board and build up a, a team of, um, of performers uh, and and have a, a key um, uh, recordist um, and you know, half a dozen to a dozen musicians who I can call on regularly to, to sketch out ideas. Um, and once you start um, using your budget to, to pay people, it's very easy just to just for it all to disappear unless um, there's a bit of discipline. So, um, yeah, I had to be careful about sort of coming up with some kind of sketch for ideas that, um, that the team could have a listen to before I, I then went into the studio. Um, to get uh, to get some feedback and um, uh, just uh, make sure that everyone was on board with it. Yeah, uh, and and maybe and the other ex extreme uh, to create that five minutes uh, uh, r rather than a, than a week uh, could just be five minutes. Someone picking up a guitar and just kind of whacking. Yeah, it for and five that can minutes. work great. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. But it's just so interesting uh, because you, you really are at the other end where yeah it is very labour intensive. Uh, and uh, but no, don't make it sound like it's not fun because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, but it is it, it, it is intense um, and uh, very to me it just seems really serious. Yeah, yeah. It's I, I would always take it seriously. It's um, it's uh, um, a feature film's a big project. You've got a lot of people counting on you. I'd um, I'd never be never be flippant about it. You've got to have a sense of humour, but um, yeah, being flippant that's not an option. And how has uh, the, the Lunic Fragments turned out, uh, both as a film and, and incorporating your score? Oh, I'm, I'm just thrilled with it. Um, I went over to, to Sydney for the, for the premiere this year, and um, although I'd seen um, most of the, the content of, of the film in various um, uh, sort of um, uh, assemblies, it seemed so much different. I know it wasn't that much different, but it just came together in um, in a way which um, seemed so complete for something which is made up of so many tiny pieces. 
uh, and it could have been just a collection of tiny pieces, but it, but it's not at all. It's got a it's got a beautiful arch to the story, and um, uh, and and the music. Although that's you know there are lots of very different um, musical ideas in there. Um, uh, the the director and sound designer have, uh, have pulled that together into something which you know has a has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, although as um, Goddard said, not necessarily in that order. background is a it's very interesting uh, not the university part that's that's boring as shit but when you left university um, you started a venue an avant-garde music venue in Adelaide called Delicatessen yes uh, and you ran that for four years yeah yes yeah so uh, how the hell did you start that without a grant for one thing how did you maintain it and, and what was that um, crazy journey like I was feeling pretty inspired at the time. Um, I didn't go straight from university into that into that venture. Um, I, I drifted off um, overseas, spent some time uh, in Warsaw at the Warsaw Autumn Festival, which I'd been wanting to go to since, since forever. Uh, and after that, I went to the Netherlands and spent a bit of time in the in the Krak scene, which is like a, like underground squatters um, community. Um, uh, at um, at the sort of the tail end of that, I guess it was a kind of a cultural era which doesn't exist in the same way now with different um, rules and regulations about squatting in the Netherlands. But um, it was uh, such a highlight of that culture just to be able to go down the street into some dusty underground little place that have their own little bar set up and um, you'd be hearing musicians performing uh, really wonderful, um, experimental, seditious, fun, um, uh, you know, violently interesting music, uh, which I'd never, I'd never heard anything like it. I mean, I'd just come from 
a festival of, of new music in Warsaw. Um, and it was like I hadn't heard any new music before at all. This, uh, this was completely different um, with the likes of uh, France de Vard um, uh, operating and, and performing, uh, you know, an iconic underground musician. Um, so when I came back to Adelaide, I thought, well, why isn't anyone doing this here? I'd, uh, I'd, love, to, I'd love to do this. Um, a friend of mine was running a gallery, which he called Gallery Delicatessen, uh, on Anster Street in the city. Uh, I knew that he was about to, to move out, so I basically just found out who the landlord was and got on the phone and, and hassled him until um, uh, I was uh, um, uh, assured of, of, uh, of the lease, which was kind of like a verbal lease on this run-down building, which is now very posh. Uh, it's did, you, did you live there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for thanks for checking that. You asked how I could afford it, and I, you know I didn't have any grants or anything like that. Yes, I did live there. It was a two-story building, two rooms. Um, downstairs was uh, an empty space with some running water up the back, um, and uh, upstairs was uh, a little bit more running water and another big space. And I lived upstairs, and I had um, concerts on on many nights downstairs and, and lots of great parties. How, how regularly uh, was this a music venue? Well, it was... Um, how regularly? I mean, it was, that was... There was a lot of shows there. It was over 200 shows in, in four years. So, you know, that's, that's four a week for four years. So pretty regularly. It was mostly in the, in the evenings because I was um, eventually had to, had to get a job to, to pay the rent. Um, and I'd get home from work, and often there would be musicians waiting at the door, ready to ready to set up for the for the concert that evening. Um, and they'd um, bring drinks along, and then we could maybe only get about 30, 35 people in their tops, but had a lot of um, exposure to really fascinating musicians who um, otherwise wouldn't have had a gig in Adelaide a lot of the time. Um, there were people organising these gigs at Delicatessen. It wasn't just me. And I threw open the doors to, to anyone who wanted to, to do the work because uh, I couldn't afford to pay anyone, um, but I could put the space up for free. Um, so uh, the likes of um, uh, John Dale um, organised a, a great number of, of, uh, of concerts by artists visiting from overseas. They might have been going to Melbourne or Sydney for a festival performance and, um, uh, and he'd, um, he'd know them through his work um, as a as a writer on music and a, and a critic um, for for the Wire and, and Dusted and um, other other new music magazines, um, invite them over to Adelaide. He'd go and pick them up from the airport. Uh, him and his friends, who also had quite a lot to do with organising these events, and um, you know, you'd, you'd bring out someone from Italy or France or or the Netherlands to play one gig in Adelaide, and um, uh, then they'd go home again, basically. That's pretty special. So although you didn't. Uh have government grants, uh, it does sound like there was a little bit of uh, philanthropy uh, at, at times. There was a lot of goodwill. Yeah, there, not a lot of money changed hands, that's for sure, but there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of goodwill um, and enough people who thought it was a worthwhile enterprise to, to keep it going and to keep um, um, trying to get people to come along, which is also an, you know, an ongoing job in itself, um, even though these, these international and visiting artists were really interesting, that doesn't mean that 30 people are going to turn up in Adelaide, um, because often they, they wouldn't. Um, uh, sadly, uh, a lot of the best gigs were witnessed by six or seven people. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's how it works. Uh, you and I uh, uh, met at my old video shop in Port Adelaide. Uh, some good, interesting things uh, have to end. Uh, everything uh, often has an end point. Uh, what happened to this project uh, and, and why did it end? Well, it was pretty tiring. It was pretty tiring. I mean, it was, it was a full-time retail work to pay the rent. Um, and then lots of concerts in the evening and everyone, you know, it was, it was every night or every second night of the week for me, but for the person who was, who was playing and the people who came along, it was party time. So it was often a really late night. Um, and I got I got pretty tired, um, a little bit uh, a little bit burnt out, and eventually it was just time to um, 
time to let someone else take over that side of things if they wanted to. Um, no one took over that space, um, but um, uh, yes, that um, gave me a bit of room to do more of my own stuff. Um, I found that I was doing a lot of great stuff with and for other people, but um, that I was ignoring a lot of the things that I wanted to do. And um, although it might be fun to still be doing it, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be writing music for films if I was, if I was still there. Wouldn't have time. I just want to come back to the life of a composer. It's very hard for me to understand because uh, uh, it's not really playing music. It's, it's, it's writing music. And, and you're not really attracted to playing. You're attracted to writing music and others playing your music. It, it's, it's you uh, in, in a very solitary task for much of that time. Why are you a composer? Why is that the, the, the path? Uh, because for a lot of other people, uh, p particularly in a sort of modern era, I, th I think they're far more attracted to, to playing uh, or, and creating their own music uh, w w with their own hands. But you, you want others playing your music. Uh, and, and as we've sort of established earlier, to compose a five-minute piece uh, may, take, uh, may take a week or, or maybe even longer. It does seem very old-fashioned, and it, it does seem like you are... Uh, clinging to something that a lot of other people are not clinging to. Uh, it's, it's, what you're doing is quite classical in a sense. Yeah. And I just, it's, it's very interesting because you're the only composer I've, I've really ever met. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, you, you are kind of holding on to a tradition and a, and a, and a process that does seem very old fashioned. So it's just, you know, and you, you're not a freak. You, you, you know, the kind of person that like uh, is antisocial or strange. But, but the idea of, of being a composer and, and locked away, writing down these notes and things does seem more secluded than, say, a, a, a projectionist or something. You know, it's a good sort of... It's a good test to get music into other people's hands. It's a... It's, um, it just gives you a... It just gives you a bit of, um, a bit of feedback. Um, if you're just going straight from your own ideas um, to a finished product, without anybody in, in between, I think you're missing an opportunity to engage uh, with other artists um, and to get their feedback, their advice, um, their, their comments and opinions uh, and take that on board to make better music. Um, uh, I find that a very valuable process. It's something I'd be reluctant to, to be without, even though it's, it's a slow and expensive way of, of working. Um, I find that for myself, I get better results if, I, if I'm listening to the, the ideas and, and opinions of, of other musicians and, and engaging with them as part of the composition process. You have a, uh, a really interesting uh, friendship and relationship with uh, Roberto. Uh, Roberto Cavagnoli. R uh, yeah, he, he's um, uh, heavily featured in the Scott Hicks documentary, Highly Strong. Yes. Uh, he's a, uh, he, he makes instruments. Yes. Uh, in Italy, uh, is, is following a sort of tradition, and now you're involved in selling these very special handmade instruments in Australia, and you have this, you know, uh, this this wonderful friendship with this guy. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've got a lot in common, I guess. Uh, you know, and um, and talking to you uh, today is is making me consider that, and um, you know, that sort of old-fashioned romantic notion of making violins by hand or composing music by hand it's something yeah that, that, that we share he, he um, makes violins the old-fashioned way he comes from Cremona in Italy which is sort of the home of the of the modern violin um, and he has you know learnt that tradition that's been handed down through the generations of just how to how to do it um, and uh, it's uh, it's slow, but also very rewarding. He can make maybe four violins a year if he if he works hard, four or five, a cello and a and a viola, um, and um, and well, it's obviously a fascinating enough process that it's featured um, uh, in great detail in in Scott Hicks' uh, documentary, Highly Strung, that you mentioned. Um, it's it's wonderful to watch. Um, he's a he's a fascinating personality and is uh, does great work. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's one of the one of the great treasures of my life that uh, friendship with Roberto. And he comes and stays at your house. I mean, yeah, you, yeah, he's you, a family you got, friend. You guys are like brothers. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah, we're, yeah, we're very close. Um, uh, and um, yeah, when I'm in Italy, I stay with his family, and uh, on his um, frequent visits to Australia, he he stays with me. Uh, yeah, we spend a lot of time together talking about music and, and violins. Um, uh, and film. We love watching film. <laughs> we have a bit of a ritual of, of trying to watch at least one South Australian film every time that he, every time that he visits. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to, to, to show him. And hence, you have become one of the go-to guys in Australia for specialist musical instruments. For nice violins, for sure. Yeah, certainly anyone who wants to have a look at the kind of work that's being done by hand in, in Cremona. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm always happy to to, to show people and, and talk about talk about that. That's um, that's true. Just a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you call it inside baseball, Cass, director of the previous two films that you have composed, you're, at the moment you're in a dialogue with him. I don't think you know what the next project is, but he's telling you of films to watch and to, and to, and to look at in, in terms of their music. What's I'm not even sure it's in terms of their music because the, the more films I watch that, um, that, um, uh, that, I'm, you know, that, that I, get, I get asked to watch, um, for, I, I think maybe this isn't really about the music. Maybe this is just a great film. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure about whether it's the it's the music or not. But um, uh, like uh, yeah, with any any director, I'm always asking um, you know what is there, what is there that um, that I can put on my to watch list. Um, that uh, that's always good for a for a relationship between a composer and a director. So it's always always looking for interesting um, ideas. Um, films to watch and whether it's because of the music's great or not it doesn't really matter um, if it's a, if it's an interesting film then great do you think there's a, yeah is there sometimes like a danger of taking it too literally like someone tells you uh, that they like this movie and this score and and is there ever a risk of trying to sort of mimic something that already exists yeah that would be um, uh, yeah no I'd uh, hopefully I hopefully I wouldn't do that um, be so impetuous and naive, um, although I, I have been known to be impetuous and naive, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> is this like it is every time, or is it kind of like a, a, a evolving? I mean, this is now, this is a long-term collaboration. What are you talking about? What are you discussing? Well, I mean, I never take anything for granted. I mean, we've done a couple of feature films together, but he's, um, he's emerged as, a, as, a, as an interesting director, and he could really work with, with whoever he wanted. Um, so I don't um, have conversations with him with any assumption that I'm uh, going to be composing his next film score, although of course I'd love to. 
Um, so it's really, it's really just basic kind of film club, film buddy stuff. Um, we, um, uh, yeah, we, we, we share our thoughts about films that we've, we've both watched. Um, and those um, you know, opinions just feed into a shared experience of filmmaking. Do you think that cinema has similarities to music? Do you see it in similar terms? Well, I guess there are a couple of ways of looking at it. I mean, music is an art form in its own right, but it's also um, it's also a contribution to you know greater um, arts of storytelling like opera or film or theatre. Um, so whether it's, it's similar or not, I mean anything can can be musical in in some respect with you know whatever kind of analogies you want to use um, uh, music is it can be almost seen as much as it can be heard i think in in in, in art and life um, it's a, it's a way of experiencing life and an, and an attitude to to things objects people um, it's music. I think it's the the ability of a, of a of someone who thinks about things musically. You know, the, the advantages in in um, in um, that one is likely to listen more. <laughs> uh, I know I'm doing all the talking today, <laughs> but um, uh, I just love listening to things, uh, listening to to people. Um, and ideas, and whether I'm I'm listening with my ears or my eyes, um, um, or, or any sense, uh, uh, it's uh, yeah, music. Music is an attitude. I think um, a musical attitude is is important to to the things I I, I find valuable in life. Um, so whether it, it can be compared to cinema or not, yeah, sure. I mean, you can make comparisons between between anything, but um, I think um, there are comparisons that could be made between music and anything else, not just cinema or, or the arts that, um, that employ music to help tell a story. I think a lot of the great directors have always said cinema is much closer to music than it is theatre. And recently I've been watching the films of uh, John McTiernan and Brian De Palma and one way of describing their, their style is that it's symphonic. You, you, if, if it is like a symphony uh, in, in terms of the, the, the sort of momentum, uh, rhythm, and uh, things uh, playing together in harmony. That's exact, exactly what symphony means, um, is, is things, things playing together, and especially in, uh, in uh, you know, big action films you tend to have everything going on at once in the same way you might have in a symphony so I think that's a great way of, of describing it. And gosh uh, and just hearing that it kind of reminds me of, of how those big bombastic films do feel like uh, an opera or something mm. uh, particularly by the uh, the third act where it, things smashing and mm. big notes yeah. and, and visually and, and orally all, all happening all happening at once. So that yeah, 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 it works well. It's a good comparison. In mm. fact, John McTiernan, you know, the director of Die Hard, uh, Predator, and Hunt for Red October, uh, grew up in the opera. His father was blind. He also said that he watched a lot of foreign films and uh, wouldn't watch the subtitles. Uh, he, he would keep his eye on the, on the screen and he would just be listening to the sound of, of, of how they say something, not what they're saying, but how they say mm -hmm. something. And, you know, I think, I think that's a key uh, to uh, sort of under, understanding, um, understanding cinema as, as, as performance uh, rather than, you know, a literal script is not a book. Uh, and it's how you say something. Yeah, that's a and, great point. And, um, you know, there is a musicality in, in dialogue and, and, and performance and, and everything. And that I think one way as a director to look at actors, they are like uh, an instrument or they have an instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've, I've, I've really started to refer to things that way. Uh, there's an actor in the film I'm making at the moment. I sent him an email last night mm -hmm. and I said, I want you to look at two actors. I want you to look at Tom Cruise and I want you to look at Pierce Brosnan and just, just analyze their instrument, like uh, analyze what they're doing with their with their instrument. That that that's what I said to him, 
um, and that's not me trying to be fancy, that's sh just shorthand to get an idea across. And I think that the more I learn and, and the more I, I understand cinema, the more I see it that way, that the actor has an, an instrument uh, and uh, and it's often the subtle use of that instrument that is most effective. Mm -hmm. it's, it's less is more, uh, because it's not theatre. It's not theatre. It's not, and uh, and um, yeah, to take it a little bit further, it, 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 it's easy to explain how actors can be typecast by thinking about musical instruments as well. Just as there's an instrument like an oboe, for example, is going to have a certain role to play in any traditional. Um, uh, symphony, um, you know, it's that very nasal, penetrating, um, but somehow still pastoral sort of tone that can, you know, it's it's beautiful, but it sort of does its one thing. Uh, whereas the um, uh, the more versatile instruments uh, are a little more unpredictable and might be able to have um, um, a more expressive range. You know, your string section, your piano, which is a kind of a world within itself. Um, uh, can an oboe play against type? Of course, yeah, yeah, but it will be an oboe playing against type. Yeah, it will still be an oboe playing against type. Yeah, uh, so it's a bit like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing against type. He's still Arnold Schwarzenegger, you can't escape. Yeah, and the, novel, the novelty of it is that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger doing something which isn't, you know, the big robotic bad guy. Yeah. Or good guy, the mm. big, big mean looking buff dude. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can you can do that with musical instruments too, but th but then it's then it's comedy, um, which is great, uh, taking something out of its usual context and putting it somewhere else. Um, but there's no way to disguise it. Um, uh, it is it is what it is. You started the conversation uh, with 2001 and how it was the modern compositions in that film. That yeah, modern, 1960s, but still much yeah. more modern in terms of classical music than um, uh, uh, you often hear in, in film. Yes. Mm. Especially at the time that that film was made. So what are some of the uh, film scores in contemporary cinema that, that you found really interesting or you've been inspired by? Oh, it's going to be one of those, um, uh, you know, there are just so many that, uh, you know, where do, where do you even, where do you even start? Really? Well, there, I mean, there's almost always something valuable to take from any, any film score, um, whether it's, um, whether it's a great one or not. There are going to be aspects of it that are worth paying attention to and, and learning from. Um, I don't have a kind of a canon of of great film scores. We, we, we both saw a Joker together and uh, neither of us uh, liked it. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the score... I hope you're not going to ask me about the music because I can't remember exactly. anything. <laughs> exactly. I, I, was, I was just about to say, I, I think that the score is not only totally forgettable, but w when it was there and noticeable, it was often really pushy. Uh, there's, there's a scene uh, that would have benefited from having no score at all, but they had to tell you how to feel, and I thought that was a real dumbing down. And then a little later, um, when, when he's jumping down the steps in this scene that we're supposed to celebrate, they're playing the music of a fucking pedophile. Yeah, look, it's, uh, it's uh, not well, necessarily well, the composer's fault um, where the music, um, you know, if, if something's done unsuccessfully, a composer can make their contribution, uh, and it may or may not be, be taken up, it may or may not be a good idea. Um, something that the, they've composed for some other part of the film might end up being put somewhere that they'd never even considered and that's, uh, that's all part of the way a film comes together. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, you're right, I, I have trouble remembering the music from that film except where I thought that, um, that it would have been musical enough not to have capital M music um, in the foreground, uh, where uh, yeah, but where the music not only doesn't add anything by its presence, but but clutters and impedes um, storytelling um, by you know some kind of sense of obligation to have some music in there. But you know why?
And how do you interpret the use of the the Gary Glitter music? You know, I can't remember. You have he, to remind me. He, he's a, uh, I think it's called Rock and Roll Part One or Rock and Roll Part Two. It's that. Da, 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 hey, rock oh and roll. right, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean okay? yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, he's a convicted pedophile. My understanding is he's in jail. Yeah. Why does he? Why are they? Um, why are they paying him money? <laughs> for that. For that. For that. Uh, a piece of music. Why is Hollywood paying this this pedophile? And and how do we interpret that as being in in the movie? Does that is that supposed to give it another layer? Or or, or if you, you know? interpret it as having any kind of social or political intent, rather than it just being a famous tune, then then yes, it's a statement. But yeah, but it ca it can't escape the context. We know we know you know we know where it came from now. So like surely, un, un, you know, un, un, unless you just don't know the backstory, it has mm. that context, it's, it's unescapable. Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of composers who are just really lovely people just write crap music and a lot of, a lot of assholes have, have written some really great music. Um, I think it's, it's never really, I mean, it's much less interesting to kind of whitewash um, uh, music of its dubious characters. Um, music's got a lot of good and bad to offer and um, it's one of, you know, you've got to be able to listen to music as music outside of those contexts. I'm not saying ignore the, the, the background, the acts, the alleged acts, the, the, uh, the ideologies, uh, political or otherwise, of, of composers that um, either have done something terrible or are going to do something terrible or just don't really fit with the way you think. Um, still got to be able to hear their music and have a conversation about it. You, you know, we were talking earlier about, about, about Lunig. Um, I don't know him personally, but I respect freedom of speech and you've got to be able to hear what people have to say, whether that's words or whether that's music and uh, make your own decisions about whether to agree with it or not, if, if agreement is even um, uh, uh, important. Um, uh, you know, someone like Jesualdo, you know, going back to the classical canon, uh, you know, a murderer, you know, um, but nonetheless, I really you know, did some important things in music and you can't just say, well, let's ignore that history. Uh, let's ignore his intuitive and baffling Harmonies. I wasn't saying necessarily ignore uh, uh, Gary Glitter. I'm just saying, what does it mean? When, 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 when this is not someone from uh, 500 years ago, that this is a person who's currently in jail uh, for sexually uh, abusing minors, mm. and they're using it in the most celebratory uh, passage of the film, where people are, you know, kind of, uh, you know, fist pumping uh, for this uh, sort of anti-hero. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Look, I'm just sort of, I didn't know it was Gary Glitter. I didn't know. I was just, uh, I, I went, oh, it's that tune. Um, uh, and it's a fist pumping tune. Because that score is so forgettable, yes. it's really interesting looking at a film that it's so obviously, I mean, derivative isn't the right word. It's a borderline remake, Taxi Driver. Uh, Bernard Herrmann's last film score, uh, but before he died, is th now that is an unforgettable score. That's a, that is a, and I I think it's just a, a really hard score to uh, uh, describe, particularly that 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 main um, theme, the, the way that it that it that it that it comes in. I mean, it is just so is what it is and there's nothing else quite like it for me and I don't mean the kind of do 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 but the the way it comes in with with basically what feels like every instrument every deep instrument at, at least playing all at once to create this kind of strange cacophony I mean it's, it's just such an awesome piece of music the one of the greatest film scores ever mm. so unforgettable uh, and 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 now we have Joker which is uh, you know sort of orally um, useless yeah, of course. Bernard Herrmann had a really good music teacher from Adelaide, though, so that's um, that's another story. But what happens if you wait a minute? What the fuck? Oh, well, his uh, one, I don't know if it was his only composition teacher, but he learned from Percy Granger. Right. Yeah, an Adelaide composer. Um, so what happens? You know, we're talking about um, you know you, you mentioned Gary Glitter before. What happens when you've got something that you really love, and then you find out, oh no, the person who made that is you know, 
they've done something reprehensible, um, what happens? Case by case basis. Because uh, it's I, part of history, you know, yes. whether, whether you like it yeah. or not, it's, yeah. it's, it's part of history. Sometimes yeah. it's part of contemporary yeah. history, but um, you've really got to be able to deal with it, I think. Um, well, I, I think it's a case by case basis, and uh, look, I'd happily uh, uh, get all my Woody Allen um, uh, DVDs and uh, fucking smash them into small pieces. Mm -hmm. That's what I would do. Okay, but have you or? No, uh, but I'm going to. <laughs> going I'm going. To? No, I'm. I'm. I, it's just I haven't got round to it. Yeah. But but uh, no, I I, I think that uh, uh, particularly in their own time. I, look, I think that I tell you one thing. Time does allow for more context of what's actually happened. Uh, sometimes, sometimes, and whether the the work is worth keeping. But I've got to say, uh, with with pedophilia. Uh, and with, with, uh, this is supposed to be a conversation well, about music. It was supposed. Well, you asked me. You asked me. I. I uh, no, no, no. You told me that uh, Gary Glitter wrote the music for a section of the Joker. I had no idea. Yeah, it was, sure. was him. Sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But you just asked me what do we do. So I'm, I'm answering the question. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm, I'm saying, uh, in the case of, of, of contemporary uh, pedophilia, my judgment is that we uh, leave these. Uh, Artists behind. That's my view. I mean, I'm not. Uh, that's, that's my view. Sure. Yeah. That's fine. They're still a part of history. History is not pretty. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not full of just the nice people. No, but do we allow them to continue to work? Like someone, like Woody Allen is going to. You can't stop someone from working. Um, you can. You can stop supporting them, but you can't stop them from working. Well, that's what we're doing. They'll like, go to. They'll go to jail. They'll still have a pencil and a piece of paper, uh, or. You know, or they'll be thrown into an asylum, and and they've got their their crayons, and they're still working like like Wolfley. Sure. Fantastic, fantastic drawings. You know, a very distressed and disturbed individual, but the work is astonishing work. Yes. Hmm. Well, it's a complex area. I, I mean, you know, uh, there's a lot of debate about Michael Jackson, and I think that that's something that's very much up in the air and debatable. Very much is debate. I don't think there is a clear answer on that because it's debatable as to what happened. It's it's. Uh, I I don't have a clear answer on that, but I, I can tell you that I, I'm unsure. Uh, but with someone like uh, Woody Allen, uh, is um, is supported to continue working, making a film a year, uh, and uh, it it you know it it seems pretty conclusive that 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 bad things were done. Um, you know, he married his stepdaughter. Um, I mean, you know, it is, it is a, you know. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, you're, you're using contemporary examples primarily and I'm, I'm, using, I'm using historical examples. Yeah. And um, perhaps um, um, that's, uh, that's a failing of my argument. I'm talking about Jesualdo and, mm -hmm. and Wolfley and you're talking about Woody Allen and Michael Jackson. And, uh, yeah, and, and, that, and that's why I'm saying to you that I think that the passage of, of time, it's like what they, that they refer to as 2020 hindsight. It, it, I think that the passage of time can reveal a bit more uh, uh, truth um, and, and that's when we can sort of determine whether, whether, you know, look, it's complex. I don't think there's easy answers here because you, you've got people from the classical period uh, who are reprehensible, but they've defined classical music and, and, and maybe, yeah. you know, so yeah, yeah it, it, is, it is sort of complicated. Because you're an Adelaide guy, I just want to dis uh, discuss Adelaide. Adelaide is a, a, a really uh, sort of interesting in that sometimes it's really surprising. It's where Rupert Murdoch comes from. It, 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 with the biggest media, you know, empire in mm. in, in in the world. Where Bernard uh, Herrmann's music teacher comes from. Yeah. Yes, uh, and and yet we we always uh, kind of feel like nothing can be done here, and and, and it's a little bit mediocre. Who, who's, who's we? Adelaide. Come on, Adelaide conversations. Uh, Everyone dislikes Adelaide. Don't pretend. Don't say it's not lame. You told, you told me that all the great Adelaide artists don't come from Adelaide, they come from regional South Australia. Well, I don't think I said all, but I think there are, you know, as, uh, you know if you get around in, in art circles in, in, in Adelaide, you certainly find um, people from out of town, um, but still from South Australia. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's usual, I think. That's more, there's a hub here. There's a, there are enough people to, to draw more people in. Um, and especially if you're from a country town, it, it might be more likely that um, you need to go to the city to find more like-minded people. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I love Adelaide. I, I, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's lame at all. It's it's a, it's a great place. It's. Um, 
I meant um, artistically lame. I think that Adelaide is. I mean, I wouldn't be buggering around here if I if I didn't like it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll put it a different way. I think Melbourne, um, okay, it's a larger critical mass, has a, a more interesting uh, art scene. It, it is it is more sophisticated. Uh, but I wouldn't want to live there, and I wouldn't want to bring up my children there. All right. So to, to me, it's... it's uh, and Adelaide is probably an easier place to make a film. We just don't do it. Yeah, we do. You do. Yeah, but it but it's 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 seldom like uh, there's there's very few uh, feature films made here. Well, um, there are a few, um, and and a f you know maybe not every five minutes, but there are a number of really good South Australian films. I mean, if if we're going to say that uh, there's not much coming out of Adelaide, then we've got to say there's not much coming out of Australia because uh, a a pretty you know, disproportionately high percentage of, of better Australian films um, come from Adelaide. Uh, what are the ones in the last five years? The last five years, uh, The Infinite Man comes to mind as a, as a, as a personal favourite. Um, that might even be... Um, it's exactly oh. five years. <laughs> okay, anything since then? Um... You can edit this silence to be as long yeah, as you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, look, I think that uh, whereas compared to Melbourne, uh, a part like let, let's let's separate uh, the uh, mainstream uh, uh, stuff. They have more of an underground scene where people are making low budget, zero budget uh, feature films in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, where people, okay, these films are going to be a bit rough around the edges, uh, but they do have a hundred percent. Uh, creative freedom and that's what's really interesting I think about some of the interstate uh, places that they have an underground filmmaking scene whereas I feel Adelaide doesn't okay um, and I would say that the good films that were made in Adelaide uh, uh, like Snowtown I mean that's what it's like 10 years ago or something yeah or uh, Boxing Day by Creef Standards again it's like yeah. like 10 years ago uh, and even the I think some of the seed investment in Emile Courtney Wilson's first narrative feature, mm -hmm. uh, Hail, yep. uh, came from Adelaide. Like, yes, the potential is here, um, but I, I would say it's a little dormant right now. However, we're making Mortal Kombat here, which is uh, you, you bizarre, like a, isn't it? Like a, a, a potentially a big blockbuster. So it's a rebooting of a, of a, of a popular Hollywood uh, a movie series so like mm -hmm. who knows it, it is kind of interesting but I don't think we have I don't think we have the underground scene here I don't think that it's um, encouraged in fact I think in some ways it's overtly discouraged so it you know and I don't think Melbourne has quite that issue because there are alternative screening venues there mm -hmm. you know, there are like several and there are sort of alternative cinema groups we don't have that here Just one second. Uh, My door swung open. Ah. You know, my, my awesome time is, is really like two in the morning. Right. Yeah, sorry, I couldn't make that work for you. No, that's all right. <laughs> I, have to, I have to go to Europe to be interviewed at a reasonable hour by Margareta. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a funny way of looking at it. Luke, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I appreciate uh, your, your work uh, on my films. Uh, you, you were a consultant, a musical consultant on Youth on the March, and mm -hmm. we wouldn't have our theme from Purcell if you didn't uh, show me, uh, you, you know, via your record collection and, and things like that. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't know much about music. I don't. You're my go-to guy, <laughs> and I appreciate it, and I really appreciate the chat. Oh, thanks. That was uh, great fun. Thanks, Mike.
Do you like punching? Do you like kicking? Do you like man grabbing? Do you like casual racism? Then you're gonna love Pride Resurrection. It's the best Pride Fighting Championship show on the internet. It might be the only Pride Fighting Championship show on the internet, but you'll love it. It's guaranteed. And if you don't love it, well, you can go fuck yourself. It's Pride Resurrection. We got them all. We got Don Fry. We got Gary Goodridge. We got Kazushi Sakuraba and a whole bunch of other Japs that you can watch fighting each other. Just remember, when you're bored and you need something to watch, Pride Resurrection, go watch it, you fucking jerk.